Welcome to Music in the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician living in St. Louis. Today we're talking with Dr. Helen Phelan. She is a professor at the University of Limerick, and she'll be talking about singing, hospitality, and the sacred stranger. She's also drawing on her ethnographic work with a Congolese Irish choir, all in this area of thinking about sonic hospitality. This is the last of the interviews recorded at this year's Christian Congregational Music Conference. You may remember we've had four other interviews so far this year that came from the plenary speakers from this conference. This interview is a little bit different because my time at the conference and Helen Phelan's time did not overlap, so I asked a friend and colleague of mine, Joshua Bussman, to interview Helen. Joshua is a professor at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke, and you may recall that he was on Music in the Church about a year ago talking about virtuosity, amateurism, and amateurishness in evangelical worship music. Before we dive into the conversation, remember that show notes as well as a transcript are at musicandthechurch.com slash 45, and at musicandthechurch.com you can find previous episodes, as well as my newsletter and other resources for people working in music and ministry spaces. So thank you to Josh and Helen for the following conversation. My name is Helen Phelan. I work in a place called the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. It's at the University of Limerick in Ireland. And the academy was set up in 1994. And it was quite experimental at the time because it was trying to create a space where you would bring together the academic study of performance with theory. Yeah. And I came into that as a ritual scholar. Right. And so the the two areas that I work in mostly are medieval singing, medieval music okay. and chant. And then the kind of work that I was presenting on this morning, which is music and migration. So what are the different kinds of ritual practices that have evolved around new migrant groups in Ireland? And what role is music playing in creating spaces of welcome or hospitality or the opposite one of the i feel like the themes of this conference has been that religion the study of religion especially the study of congregational music is already interdisciplinary right from the beginning um, but i'm curious sort of what are your disciplinary or interdisciplinary backgrounds because that often is, is good to know in terms of informal but i was i began my education as a musician okay. I'm, I'm a pianist i have a background in musicology mm-hmm. and ethnomusicology and I moved into liturgical music really through ritual studies. I was really interested in, I was teaching music, and I was really struck by how much the teaching of music relies on the theory about music and the, the big divide between being a musician, making music, singing, playing an instrument, and the way we theorize about it. And at the same time, I was just, you know, earning my keep as a young student, as a as a church organist and working in the church. And I, I really became fascinated by ritual because I was saying ritual yeah. has this kind of holistic sense of it uses the mind, the body. It uses all of our senses, our sense of smell and the tacit and the sensorial. And I thought that's a space that brings all of these together. And I, I wanted to try to understand that better. So that's what brought me into studying ritual and the way in which music works in ritual to create these, these spaces where people interact in different ways to the way we do in our normal day-to-day life. 
Yeah, I think I remember when I was an undergrad uh, talking with a professor and, and talking about my sort of interest in religious music. And I said, I thought it primarily consisted in the fact that I could find myself reading Plato or theology or literature or playing an instrument or listening to a record. And all of it seemed productive in some sort of way. Like, this could all be part of what I do exactly. for a living. That would be amazing, right? Exactly. And that's yeah. what, in all my work, I really try to, as much as I can, bring those strands together. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a huge interest in postmodern philosophy and theology mm -hmm. because I think it's it's asking some of the really important questions Absolutely. about being in the world you know how do we try to live well in the world I know it's a loaded sentence in itself but how do we try to do that asking those kinds of questions and then also you know the experiential world of making music of singing in a choir or, and then there's the the real political world that we all live in, you know, I'm particularly interested in, you know, we live in a time of absolutely unprecedented migration. Mm -hmm. There have never been as many people going as many places as there are now. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for doing those can be uh, shocking and difficult and um, full of danger. And is there a way to bring those worlds together? You know, the world of ideas, the world of, of, of music making and the contemporary world that we live in and what relevance do they have to each other. Yeah. So in all my work, I try to create this kind of um, weave between those ways because I think that's how many of us actually experience the world. We think a lot about it, we live in it, and we perform in it. Yeah. And it's really bringing those together, I think, yeah. that allows us to live you know, as, as holistic a life as we can. Yeah, well, so the way that you laid it out there, uh, basically, I think what I would like to do now is, is sort of unweave it for a second and then we can weave it back to you. <laughs> um, Perfect. But I, but I like the idea of taking it sort of in that order of starting with the, a little bit of the, the, the high theory, as it were, right? The philosophy, yeah. uh, and then moving in a, a little bit to the musical practice and then the sort of broader, uh, implications. So, um, so two sort of terms, obviously, which are crucial to understanding some of what you're doing are hospitality, which you yeah. talked about at the beginning. Uh, and then, and then the the idea of the stranger or the other, um, and as is often the case in postmodern philosophy, these are words that we use in our everyday language that are being sort of uh, right. queered in their use uh, in the academic uh, context. So, if you could start maybe with hospitality and talk a little bit about how you're using that term. Absolutely, yeah. I'm all, I'm always I I like to keep a an ear out for recurrent language. You know, when you see a word reappearing, uh, reappearing like a little trope in literature, in conversation, on newspapers, and this word hospitality, I noticed really over about the last 10, 15 years, it comes back again and again. And I became really interested in it, and particularly in Derrida's work around the word, because it seemed to me that what it was trying to grapple with was the nature, the complex nature of human relationships. I think very often when we try to say, how can we live together in the world, we tend to emphasize uh, the things we have in common, community. And Derrida says, well, hospitality is a little bit more complicated than that. Because, and, and, and I love etymology, I love going back to the meaning of words, and he, he indeed reminds us that that word has this double history, this double heritage. It's related, of course, to words of nurturing, like, hospice and hospital hospitality but it's also related to hostility and the enemy and he makes that point that hospitality it's a much um, bigger challenge than say community 
the community very often emphasizes the being with people that we have something in common with. Hospitality says, you know, we need to welcome the person that we fear, welcome the person that creates anxiety in us. And, and he goes on further to make the point that that anxiety is often created by the fact, of course, that the other that we see in this stranger throws up the other in ourselves, the other that sometimes we don't want to see. So hospitality is about coming to terms with what we fear in the other. So all these issues like xenophobia and that, but also grappling with why, why we, that, that, that button gets pushed in us because very often, of course, it has something to do with how we understand ourselves. Right. Yeah. I think the, the, at least a, a summary of the Derrida line, right, is, uh, First, we encounter the other as monstrous. Then we encounter ourselves as monstrous, right? Correct. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I think that that is is so huge. And I, I love, I love too the way that you brought in this idea of sort of risk, right? Which is so crucial to Derrida's notion of hospitality. You know, he uses that that Joycean sort of the gift for gift it, right? The gift poisons. That's right. Um, right. As a way to get at this, you know, you're opening the door at two in the morning. You don't know who's at the door, but you open the door anyway. That's hospitality, right? It's this the being hospitable at the moment of complete the complete unknown right the complete the whole the holy other right would be that exactly right and i i I really appreciate that nuance that derrida brings between what he calls the conditional and the unconditional Mm -hmm. and he uses this not only with hospitality but with concepts like forgiveness or you know the big uh conceptual worlds words around relationship how do we how do we forgive the unforgivable how do we welcome that which we abhor? And I think he suggests that we can do it conditionally, which means we do it with limits. We do it to the limit of our legal or political system. But we must always strive to also do it unconditionally. We must always try to do the impossible, the unforgivable, the unimaginable. And it's the... The space of possibility resides between those two, between the conditional and the unconditional. And what I was trying to say in the talk today, because it's something that um, it's a conviction that I have come to over the years for many, many years of working with with choirs, with uh, new migrant groups in Ireland, with new ritual communities, is that that space of hospitality, I have most frequently encountered it with groups who are singing together. Yeah, which is a great sort of transition, right, uh, from this, this, uh, I had written down under sort of Derrida's name, right, this, this idea of the unconditional yes, right, that that's a great definition of hospitality. Um, and then the next sort of thing I wrote down, right, was embodied hospitality is epitomized by singing, right? So, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see singing playing into this and maybe, um, what it was that caused you or, 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 uh, made you gravitate towards singing as a way to explore these themes. Well, I, I have to be honest and say I really kind of stumbled into this um, this understanding. I stumbled into it experientially first. I think so many people who uh, sing, uh, sing with others, have an intuitive sense of that their being with others in that experience of singing is somehow different. It somehow transcends the way in which we uh, normally are with each other in the world. Uh, so I had that experience many, many times, as, as I'm sure many singers do. Um, and at the same time, I was reading a lot of this literature. I was, I was excited conceptually by these ideas. 
And at a certain point, those kind of theoretical ideas and this intuitive feeling around the experience of singing began to coalesce. And I began to ask myself, is it possible? Like, because one of the things that really interests me, we have these ideas like hospitality, but like, how do we ground it? How do we live it? How does it manifest itself? And I began to think about that. Um, is it possible that singing is a manifestation of that? So I burrowed back into the literature and found some wonderful material. Like Chris Deva, for example, has a lot of wonderful material about sound and silence and the relationship between these and how moving beyond ourselves involves, you mentioned risk, the, the risk of silence, the risk of unknowing, not knowing, having no language. And she says in one very beautiful passage, what comes after silence, song. And so the two worlds began to come together for me. And I suppose the other piece of that is, you know, I've nearly 20 years of working with choirs and I work a lot with um, people who came to Ireland initially as asylum seekers, who have come to live in Ireland, who have set up musical groups. And I've 20 years of ethnographic interviews, which have convinced me, have, have, have really persuaded me that there is a real world value in these ideas, that there is something very persuasive as I experience it and witness it in the role that that kind of music has played in helping people build new real lives in new parts of the world. Yeah, and I think as you demonstrated really well uh, in the talk, that the the great thing about singing in this context is it sort of brings together um, the a, a philosophical sort of idea about hospitality, um, but it's also grounded in a kind of scientific physiological literature about sort of uh, compromise-oriented behavior and sort of being together uh, in particular ways, as well as, as you said, in this sort of you know narrative anecdotal way that people move through the world, right? So it's indexing together these different ways that we come to understand the world uh, and, and sort of taking something different in each box. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, my initially I came at this, as I said, kind of intuitively, experientially. I'm, I'm an ethnographer, so it was through narrative, people's stories, and the accumulation of those stories saying, yes, something's happening, something's happening. But then I said, what is the science of this? You know, so we have all of this anecdotal um, evidence that something's happening, but what is the actual science? And I became really interested in, in that. And, and you're absolutely right. The literature around the physiological effects of singing, the psychological effects of singing, and what my own work in particular is about the effects of singing with other people, because that, that brings a whole other area of research into it. You know, how our bodies literally start to attune with each other. What happens to your, to your heartbeat? What happens to your breathing when you're singing with other people? And, you know, we've all this new theory now on mirror neurons and what happens to the people listening? And the ability of that sound to create shared physiological and emotional experiences. It's, it's, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a huge literature on that, but it's something I think that sometimes we underestimate in terms of its, as I said, its real world value. I think a great deal of the 
either avoidance or fear or uh, neglect of that scientific literature, I think probably comes more from our insecurity as humanists than it does from its lack yeah. of applicability, right? Uh, maybe we're uh, in a PhD program in the humanities because in our undergrad we didn't do particularly well in our science classes and we, yes. we're feeling yeah. not particularly yeah. confident, yeah. but uh, well, but there are resources there to be explored. Yeah, and I have to say I've, I have been very um, influenced by my colleagues in music therapy because they they live at that crossroads between the, the, the human performative experience of making music, but also the science then of how that can be applied usefully to various to various situations. So I think as as people who are interested in music and ritual, as as many of us are, it would be it's 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 good for us to kind of look at that literature because in actual fact it it explains to us why the things we are doing are as effective as they are. Yeah, right. Um, one last bit of of uh, the sort of. Uh, framing, and then uh, and then we'll get into uh, the, the great case study that you used. Um, and that is, you use this triad of content, context, and intent uh, as a way into this conversation of talking about uh, community singing and, and, and ritual. So I was wondering if you could just give us a quick sort of sketch of that. Yeah, I, I must say, I, I'm always, I've always been drawn to models because I think a challenge for um, any of us who are working with music is that there's an awful lot we know experientially and intuitively, but creating the bridge between that kind of knowing and research can be quite a challenge. What kind of methods can we use to frame the work we're doing to critically engage and analyze? And I think, you know, I'm, I'm influenced by mathematical theory here. I think models can often help us do that because models really all they do is they create a kind of a theoretical frame that allows us to play with experience and then that can open up possibilities of interpretation and analysis. So, and as I was saying in the talk, I have a lifelong interest in language around numbers because I think numbers are themselves a, a, a really fascinating symbol system, aren't they? Not least of which in, in Christianity, medieval Christianity, which is one area that I work in, and particularly around triads. Mm -hmm. Because triads are the, in many world literatures, wisdom traditions, they are the number of um, divinity for various reasons, because they, they emerged, they evolved as a way of representing the whole. So you had the, what existed, you had dualities which represent opposites, and then triangulations which represent the whole, the beginning, the middle, the end. But also because they're often used to represent the best, the superlative. Mm good, better, best. They have been applied to the divinity. So I, I became very interested in triangular models. And there are, there are a lot of really fascinating ones in ethnomusicology, in anthropology, and in liturgical theology for talking about or framing musical processes. So I looked at those. I looked at the interviews that I had done over these last 20 years. And it seemed to me from all of those, I could glean three primary preoccupations. There is the issue of context. You know, we, we, we say music is a universal language, which is true as long as we remember that it is present in the entire universe, but it is not singular. So the context, the cultural context of music, where music comes from is, is critical. Right. I always tell my students uh, with music as a universal language that that isn't true, but it's not true because it's actually two different true statements, right? Correct. Music is universal. Right. Yeah. And music is a language. 
it's not a universal language. Correct. Right. So cultural context is is key to understanding any musical expression. Um, and then there's the content. What are we actually singing? Repertoire, improvisation. This comes up again and again when people start talking about their music. And then the third one, which struck me as hugely important and maybe less discussed, is intent, motivation. Why? Why are we singing? Why are we singing what we're singing? And the way in which people articulate their music, and so many of the interviews I do are around that. What is your music? Why do you sing it? Where do you sing it? Who are you singing for? And um, what's its purpose? Fall into that model of context, content, and intent. So I was, and, and something that struck me over the years of using this model and looking at the way people talk about their music is yes, the three of these keep coming up as tropes or motifs in the way that people talk about their music. But fascinatingly, when they perform the music, there's often a lot more blurring of the categories than appears in the language. And I thought, ah, it's in that malleable space that we find the hospitality. Because that's where that, that searched for, unconditional, that thing that goes beyond what we can do, that we can only aspire to, that hospitality happens in that blurred performative space. Yeah, well, it's the, you know, the, the, it's the call, right? The solicitation that, that, uh, the insistence that Caputo was talking about. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate it. You know, I, the, that, the, that Derrida idea of both and is something that I have always found really helpful that, because sometimes it seems to me that in attacking past ways of understanding the world, we kind of throw the baby out with bathwater. And I think Derrida is always saying that it is something new. It is something different, but that does not, erase what has been that's the both end and so it struck me that these categories are there because they're extremely helpful we don't eradicate them but we we enliven them we transform them through the performance right yeah it's, i'm forgetting where but i remember derrida saying that uh, deconstruction is giving something a future right it's <laughs> it's desedimentation, imagining that it might be otherwise and might have a future that, that is unknowable. You're absolutely right. And sometimes those little prefixes like D or like post or like on can can create a sense of, of, of something. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking something that comes after has no reference point with what came before it, while it's in fact it can't exist unless the thing has happened, you know. So it's standing on the shoulders of that past experience. So it's our ability in a way to embrace and this is this is the again that kind of holism that's referenced in in triangulations to embrace the whole not to reject uh, what has come before but to enliven it to animate it through i think there's of course many ways to do that but a particularly effective way to do that is to enliven it through performative experience Right. So, yeah, that's that's a, a nice sort of connection, right? We've been in uh, a fairly sort of lofty theoretical space, right? Well, let's bring it to ground and talk about uh, this case study that you used, and it's Elikia? Elikia. 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 Yeah, it's the Lingala word for hope. Oh, fabulous. So tell us about Elikia. Who are they? Where do they come from? And, and how did you become connected with them? So if I, if yeah, if I start with actually how, how I got to know them, because as I said to you earlier, my, all my early work was around um, medieval music, ritual. My own doctoral work was about the um, post-Vatican II changes in Catholic liturgy in Ireland. So when, you know, 
other musical forms and expressions came into the Catholic liturgy. And I finished that work in 2000. And I said, you know yourself, you come to the end of a PhD journey, you said, I have to now, I really have to do something else. I have to take my head up out of the books. And at exactly that time, in the year 2000, we were coming to the end of this kind of post-Celtic Tiger period in Ireland. And for the first time, you know, we're, we're a country of immigrants. In Ireland, you know, since the, the Great Famine, the mid-19th century, really up until the latter part of the 20th century, we have, proportionally speaking, we have the highest rate of immigration of any country in Europe, Western Europe. People weren't coming to Ireland, they were leaving Ireland. That changed in the 1990s. For the first time, we had a significant number of people coming into Ireland, uh, including a number of asylum seekers. Most of them tended to come to Dublin, the capital city, until the year 2000. Uh, the government introduced what they called the policy of dispersal, and, and, and people were literally put on buses and sent around to different cities in Ireland. So I, I work in a place called the University of Limerick and I heard of a group setting up in Limerick City, a support group, because uh, asylum seekers were going to be coming to our city. So I said they were looking for English language teachers. I said that's something I could do. I had a TEFL qualification and I went in and I started working with the groups and I was only there a couple of months when four gentlemen from the Democratic Republic of the Congo came up to me. They had heard that I worked in music in the university and said, we have an idea, we want to start a choir. And, and that was the beginning of it for me. That was the beginning of our, of our interaction. Um, and a group, a group, and I thought, this is, this is terribly interesting. These people have, are barely in Ireland and their first idea, they're living in a direct provision accommodation, they don't have a home, they haven't engaged with education, they want to start a choir. So we did that, and that was the beginning of a 20-year relationship. I started a project called Sanctuary, which was to provide kind of cultural support for new migrant groups who wanted to set up um, culturally-based projects. So Alikia, uh, as I said, which is the Lingala word for hope, started uh, almost 20 years ago in Limerick City. It's gone through many manifestations, but what's really interesting now, I think, is that they are a choir and a group of musicians who help new migrants who are coming to Limerick, who may be interested in setting up similar projects. I think it's interesting, um, obviously, in Derrida, as you said, the thing I also love about Derrida is this remarkable attention to words, right, and to etymologies and things. And so I, I found it interesting, especially when you showed the clip, right, that you see, um, you know, percussion, you see uh, piano, you see, that uh, it's interesting that they chose the word choir instead of band. Right, uh, and this sort of choice to go with a more sort of clearly participatory style of music making rather than a presentational one. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, their conception of what this group might might be from the beginning. Yeah, and this this I think also that's a very interesting point in terms of the model because if you if you ask the choir uh, what they are, they would say we are a choir when we sing in church. We're a band or an ensemble when we go to festivals or we do workshops. So they will use different language depending on where they're singing. But very often the musical forces are the same. So as you said, it might it might be the that particular video just showed a small number of people. And sometimes when you have the full complement, it is more like a traditional choir. But they um, will sing equally with instruments or without without instruments just a vocal presentation. So the uh, the language of it tends to say a particular presentation of the music aligns itself to a particular word like choir or band or ensemble. 
But in actual fact, the musical performances are, are, are much more mixed. It's harder to pin down the presentation of the music to the language used around it. That's, I, I think that's interesting. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, this song that you chose to have us all sing together, right, in Kolo Abiyangio. Um, and a little bit about maybe why you chose that song or why that song uh, you think is a particularly good example of the kind of thing that you're talking about. There, I mean, there's so, I, I sang myself with Alikia for many years and learned so many fabulous songs. I mean, I love, I love the music. But that one in particular, I, I like because I've, it was one of the first songs we learned. It's on their first album. And I have heard, it's, it's just a great example of the, the, the kind of thing I was trying to get across, which is that even though we might describe music, as Alikia does, as liturgical or sacred or secular, I've heard this song sung in all of those contexts. I've heard it sung um, this at a, at a Catholic mass, at a Pentecostal service, at a, a African Day festival, and the 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 nature of the song, the lyrics of the song, the song, the the text means um, if God God is calling, and the the verses are if God is calling you, don't wait until tomorrow to answer, answer now, and it, it is very unproblematic to bring this to all of those different environments. And again, that makes me think about how music works. You know, the, the, the articulation that we often do of these different styles or repertoires can be completely undermined by the way in which we perform it. And that performance can be so much more inclusive and all embracing. In some of the, some of the people who came up to talk to me after the presentation were making this point, the number of people who will sing sacred music no problem, but would describe themselves as atheists. Or, so there's something about music that um, overrides our insistence on definitions. You know, are you a Christian? Are you not a Christian? Do you believe? Do you not believe? What do you believe? And music is probably less interested in the cognitive answers to those questions and far more interested in the experiential uh, beingness of relationship. And that's what I think comes across in songs like that. Yeah, well, and so perfect that the lyrics, again, have this idea of call or solicitation, yeah. right? This yeah. uh, this insistence, right, that we've, we've talked that's about several right. times. Um, okay, so we've gone through this sort of uh, the framing, the philosophical bet, and now the singing bet. And so I want to broaden out a little bit and talk about the, the sort of political possibilities, right? So um, there are obviously some, you know, direct political possibilities in the way this is interfacing with uh, with community building and, and, and migrant communities, right? But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the sort of broader potentials uh, of this, of the research you're doing, right? Of talking about uh, singing and compromise-oriented behavior and, and, uh, and, and politics. Well, one of the things that strikes me increasingly, you know, like we, we, I was going to say we, we, we live in, in strange times. Maybe we always do. But, you know, we, 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 we live in particularly strange times, I think, in terms of, some of the big existential questions like what is truth you know what 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 is true what can we believe uh, what we hear in the in the in the media can we trust politics you know can we can we um put our faith behind the institutions of the church or of our political world or of our health systems or you know and there are a lot of questions around um trust around power around abuse and a sense of disenfranchisement i think from 
our ability sometimes to make a difference in those worlds. It seems to me sometimes that in grappling with those, we limit ourselves by dealing with them primarily through the world of cognitive logic, thinking that the language of politics, even the language of policy, of advocacy, that that will be sufficient to bring about real change. And I think what we have learned is that it, it's, it's sufficient in terms of changing structures, but, you know, as we say, to change hearts and minds is a bigger job of work. I am increasingly convinced through, as I said, a couple of decades of this work, that we, we limit our toolbox to our own detriment. You know, that we have, um, we have crippled ourselves by not embracing the full potential of the, the skills and the talents that we have available to us. Um, and, and maybe because I'm a musician, I'm particularly interested in the skills and talents around singing. Uh, so much of the research says that this can make a difference. This can help people learn to live well together. And I think in you know the time that I have left in my academic career, um, I'm, a, I'm a mother to a young teenager, um, in thinking about his future, in thinking about my students, in thinking about the world that I want to hopefully um, leave behind me, I want to spend my time um, thinking about and engaging in activities that help us live well together. And I, I think singing has a very significant role to play in this. I wanted to ask briefly about the, this idea that I you know raised at the beginning the, about the the gift for gifted right. So singing is a gift, but it might also be a poison, right? Uh, singing can be used to unify around noble causes and and evil causes, right? Um, and so I wonder how uh, how can we be mindful, attentive, vigilant uh, to the use of singing to create communities that are oriented towards. Uh, you know, justice and inclusion and all the things we want to see. That, that is a great question. And I, I actually have a PhD student. She's from Palestine and she's working on music and conflict. And a lot of her work is around when music doesn't help, you know, and this is particularly relevant to issues of migration, um, post-conflict trauma, and the many situations that, um, that migration is just one example, but... Um, it could be any kind of trauma, um, homelessness, bereavement. Um, there are situations where um, music uh, is not helpful. It's not useful in those in those contexts. And you're absolutely right. We need to, you know, I always say music isn't good. Music is powerful. And we need to be very cognizant of that power and use it with care. But it is worth saying that when we say that music contributes to our well-being, that and again, you know, I have this interest in 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 language. Uh, being well does not necessarily mean being happy. It doesn't necessarily mean that things are good. It means that um, wellness is linked to to holism, to holistic. It means that we are ontologically trying to be our fullest selves um, in this world at this time. And the only way we can do that is to embrace that full story to embrace our trauma to embrace our bereavement to again to circle back to derrida to embrace the other in ourselves the part that 
you know, is, is difficult and challenging. So I think when we say music helps us, sometimes that help is about, as Chris Davis says, knowing when to be silent, uh, knowing when silence is the music that we need. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a very complex relationship, the relationship between music and wellness. And that's, again, where I think ideas like hospitality can help us because it's being open to the, the, the darker side as well as the other. Right. I think if, if there's a, a, a sort of a simple way to draw that connection, right, it's that singing together and hospitality share in common the fact that we can be surprised. Uh, and putting ourselves in positions to be surprised right, is a huge part of uh, it seems like maybe what you're talking about that, that that's a lovely way of putting it because it's the it's the unknown that that forces us beyond you know it's not that i i i don't like the word community but i increasingly feel its limits uh, because it's because of its emphasis on commonality and as you said the thing that surprises us is the thing that um, one one of the speakers this morning was quoting Seamus Heaney, who has this lovely line, you know, the thing we never think to look for, and that is the that's the surprise, as you said, that's the that's the encounter with the stranger, and that is you know if we if we want to live in a world where we're not locked down in an inability to be in relationship with something that doesn't conform to our understanding of the world. We have to be able to experience surprise. And what is the nature of that experience? You know, just ask, ask any, you know, teenager who listens to a piece of music for the first time and it changes their life. You know, how many of us have had that experience of it literally changing our lives because it is the music we never thought to listen for? And that, you know, we can, we can say that as an actuality, we can say it as a metaphor, but being being open to that space and also creating a world where those experiences are common and not exceptional. So I think that that is, and that's one of the, the places where we can think about things like ritual. The more we create those spaces in our world, the more we allow for the possibility of that surprise. And when we live in a world that is very, as I said, kind of um, efficient and oriented towards um, getting a task done towards, you know, completing a job and employment, um, um, an entrepreneurial relationship, we don't allow ourselves as much space for that kind of surprise. So it's very interesting to look at societies where ritual plays a really important role in the day-to-day -day life of that world. It's something I think that would would help us if we could enhance the availability of that kind of space. It, it, when you were talking, for some reason I was thinking of another Seamus Haney poem, one of my favorites, a uh, sonnet called The Skylight, which is in the second Glenmore cycle. Um, and the, yeah, the idea that uh, so often that surprise when we, we you know, cut open the, the roof and extravagant sky enters, as he says, um, that, that surprise is often coupled with a kind of permeability and openness, right, which is so much of, of, of what you're talking about. That's right. And, you know, I think that one, one of the, the things that has always struck me, you know, through a, a lifetime of trying to study music is, you know, you're, you're, you're studying something so ephemeral, so um, fleeting and, and transient. You know, I, lo I love that image of the scholar Christopher Bannerman. He says it's like, it's like trying to study the butterfly on pins. Um, you're studying something in flight. 
And that makes it very difficult to do, but that's what makes it worthwhile mm. because it is so, it's, it's so, it's, it's preciousness is linked to that transience. And that, again, that's a very interesting metaphor for being in the world that we can't, we can't hold on to stable senses of who we are, of uh, identity, of, of nationality, of, beliefs or creeds you know we fool ourselves if we think that they're stable they're constantly changing and being open to that change and living in a way that that develops the muscles to cope with that change and to be open to awe to be open to extravagance and wonder we need to develop those 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 um proclivities, those ways of being in the world. And I think ritual and the activities of ritual, uh, singing, gesture, dance, movement, can can be real aids to that way of being in the world. Yeah, and then on that journey, it's almost like the, the sort of songs and dances become companions that go on that journey with us, right? We hear the song differently five years down the road and 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, but it still is with us through all of those changes. Right? That's right. And that's a, that's a lovely aspect of, you know, the, the research on singing, there's a, there's a whole um, section on singing and memory because one of the really important functions of singing is that it helps us to recreate experiences. So think, you know, we, we've all had this experience, you know, when you hear a piece of music, you know, that, you know, you heard for the first time at your first kiss and that whole experience opens up again in your life and uh, yes in say in the context of many of the groups i work with that can be traumatic but it can be cathartic it can be healing uh, and it can also be extraordinarily pleasurable to revisit and re-narrate and reconfirm our stories and if we think about the, the, the ways in which our world allows us to do that, they're, they're limited. They're limited. So, you know, every time, every time you sing a song, you recreate yourself and you recreate a part of your own story. And moreover, you share that. Well, I think that's all I have. Do you have any final parting thoughts or uh, anything you feel like you wanted uh, to be asked about that I didn't ask about? No, I just I'm ex I'm terribly grateful to be able to share these ideas in this context because what I sense from the some of the other presentations that I had the privilege to hear is that there is an open-hearted grappling with the big questions of the the role of music, the purpose of music, and how that can dialogue with the way in which we live, understand, experience the sacred in our in our contemporary world. So I'm I'm grateful to be part of that conversation. Well thank you so much. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks to Dr. Helen Phelan and Dr. Joshua Busman for this conversation. You can find show notes as well as a transcript at musicandthechurch.com slash forty five. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music in the Church with Sarah Bariza.